0: Joining me on the Dog and Bone is Jason McLeod from the Australian West Papua Association. How you going, Jason? Yeah, good, Scotty. How's yourself? Excellent, excellent. Hmm. Um, now, I guess uh, West Papua. Where is it? It's uh, the other half of Papua New Guinea.
1: Yes, that's right. On the on the western half of the island of New Guinea, it's uh, it's an Indonesian colony, uh, but it's on the western rim of the Pacific. Uh, I actually like to tell people it's a, it's a swim and a walk away from Australia's northern borders. Because actually when the, when the tide goes down, you can actually wade across from Boigu and Saibai Island in the Torres Strait, which is Australian Territory, and wade across to, to mainland Papua New Guinea, and then walk across the border uh, to Boral very, very close to Australia. It's uh, less than 150 kilometres.
0: Yeah, I was looking on my little globe earlier, and it's about the same distance from Darwin as Dilly.
1: Yeah, I think even closer. Yeah, yeah. Uh, particularly from those, you know, Northern Torres Strait Islands. Um, but yeah, it's 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 very close, and it hasn't really featured much in uh, you know in the Australian political imagination, uh, even though Australia's been intimately involved, and even though it's, you know, it's one of our nearest neighbours.
0: Yeah, we know a lot about Papua New Guinea, I guess, um, in Papua there's a massive mountain range in, sort of, as the spine of the island, I imagine that continues through into uh, in West Papua. Yeah, that's right, that that whole
1: range, as you, as you say, runs across the spine of uh, the island of, of New Guinea. Um and I mean, the, the landscape is just phenomenal. I mean, I mean, it's 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 one of these extraordinary places uh, that's just so diverse and just so incredibly beautiful. It's actually possible to stand on a, a glacier surrounded by ice and snow uh, at around about five thousand metres and look down on the equator. Uh, it's it's really quite incredible. 75% of the, the country is covered by tropical rainforest. Um, and, yes, yeah, so, so biologically and culturally, it's incredibly diverse. I mean, if you look at both halves of the island, both Papua New Guinea and West Papua, together they contain 15% of the world's linguistic diversity. I mean, it's like 15% of... The world's languages, fifteen percent of the, you know, the total uh, indigenous or or you know cultural worldviews on planet Earth. It's just truly a remarkable place.
0: Yeah, right. So I guess being on the equator there, you got the uh, the tropical wet and dry seasons.
1: That's right. That's right. Monsoon comes through th- end end of the year. Um, and yet, yeah, see the. Um, it's pretty much hot and wet or hot and dry
0: <laughs> 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 and is, am I right in thinking that that's the place where every now and then you'll get a, a, a news item saying they've found some new species up in in is that West Papua yes
1: it is West Papua uh, I mean a, only a few weeks ago actually uh, it was in in the news again um, the the Fota mountains which uh, just to the to the west. Of of Jayapura, yeah. So they, yeah, which is the capital. Um, they found several new several new bird species. Uh, I think a new tree kangaroo, um, a new um, a new echidna type of echidna. Yeah, I, and I think several new insects as well. And and then there's a I mean, and this is both happening on the land and in the marine. Uh, when you know marine studies are done as well. So a few years ago, for instance, there was a, uh, a rapid marine assessment team that was doing some work out on the Raja Ampat archipelagos to the northwest of Sorong in, the, in what they call the Bird's Head region, so the western part of West Papua. And part of that study they found 600 new mollusk species 600 new fish species uh, and hundreds of new coral species. That was then backed up uh, by a UNESCO study uh, shortly afterwards and they came back with the similar findings and concluded that in that small collection of islands, uh, the Rajarampan Archipelago have uh, 64% of the world's marine biodiversity, I mean, the, I think one of the marine biologists said it's it's the heart of the world's marine biodiversity. It's just extraordinarily beautiful and and diverse. Uh,
0: Sounds like a pretty incredible place, I reckon. Uh,
1: yes, pretty tragic that uh, BHP Billiton wants to open a open cut nickel mine in the same area and dump the tailings into the ocean.
0: Uh-huh. a bit more of that action coming, eh? Yeah. Um, the indigenous people there you say there's a heap of languages there Um, Mm, yeah mm. I presume there's many little tribal village groups is that right?
1: yeah that's right I mean uh, there's something like 300 plus um, distinct indigenous languages and each and you know these are uh, often they're mutually unintelligible Um, and sometimes the the that cultural diversity will shift when you cross a mountain range or or head down a river or something like that. Um, so yes, there's extraordinary cultural diversity. Although the people are all Melanesian, so they're they're the same kind of people uh, that you find in in Papua New Guinea, uh, in the Solomon Islands, in, in Bougainville, in Vanuatu, um, you know Fiji, places like that. Mm. there. And in fact, the the border, the border that um, where well, you've got independent Papua New Guinea and uh, Indonesian colony of West Papua, actually dissects uh, distinct indigenous nations. So you can have people whose food garden is on one side of the border, <laughs> uh, and their homes on the other side of the border, which is actually the case in in Wutong. You know, the the village right in Papua New Guinea, right near the. Uh, the northern part of the border, but it's equally true as you follow the border uh, south up into across the uh, the Star Mountains and then down again towards the Fly River and, and Morocco, You know, it cuts across Indigenous nations all the way along.
0: Yeah, right. So um, I imagine each culture would have its own religion, pretty much.
1: Yeah, also, you know, they've they've got their distinct, um, yeah, distinct worldviews. Um, you know, distinct stories and legends uh, About that, how they came in, into being a, You know, distinct rituals And, uh, and you know, religious beliefs Yeah
0: And is that sort of mixed up with uh, Christianity Brought in by the Dutch?
1: Yeah, it is uh, It is, I mean Christianity plays a very strong role uh, in, in West Papua And um, yeah, I mean, like all 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 the history between Indigenous people and Christianity, the history is quite mixed. Uh, you know, good good and bad stuff there. Um, I think the church. A lot of Papuans, you know, f- said to me that you know that they consider that the church to be the only foreign institution that has become truly Papuan. It's kind of provided a place of refuge for the people. But at the same time, I mean, there's also been the the negative uh, impact of of Christianity in in terms of, you know, loss of culture. And that has, that impact has been uneven, uh, depending on who, you know, who did the evangelization and depending on the indigenous culture uh, in in question. Mm -hmm. But it's, there's a couple of, indigenous theologians who are actually really working to strengthen indigenous religion religious beliefs actually um you know and i mean and really strengthening local uh religious practices and then there's the experience of you know like for instance it was um in 90 96 no 98 when a couple of i think it was 98 but late 90s there were a couple of Belgian filmmakers taken hostage, and a Protestant and Catholic uh, uh, leaders when it went up to negotiate um, with the with the the group that took took these two Belgians hostage. And one was an indigenous Protestant uh, leader, and the other was a Dutch Franciscan friar. And, you know, they tell the story how, you know, they were greeted with great pomp and ceremony and the the Indigenous people there actually handed the Bible back to them, you know, saying that it brought them (laughs) little good, in fact brought them nothing but misery. you know, so they <laughs> actually handed the Bible back. That, take it away now. We've, real- we've, you know, we've had this for a while and we've realised that it doesn't do us any good. So.
0: Yeah, so yeah. Off you go. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but at the same time, you know, to, on the other hand, there's, in, you know, religious... The Church uh, is very prominent in supporting human rights investigations and, and the Catholic Church in particular has established um, human rights and peace and justice organisations, um, and are really responding to the aspirations of the people. So, you know, the the, the history and the contact with Christianity is is mixed.
0: Mm, as it is everywhere, I guess. Yes. yes. Um, when when did the Dutch bring uh, all of their goods to West Papua? Well,
1: look, the the Dutch lay claim uh, to the island in. In the 1800s, I think that border was drawn up. Uh, I'm trying to remember the exact dates. It was was in the mid 1800s, but they didn't officially establish an outpost there until 1898. And uh, ostensibly, that was really to uh, protect the lucrative spice trade, Um, particularly in the spice islands, just to the bordering uh, West Papua, so the islands of the Malacus. Uh where they had, you know, nutmeg and cardamom and sort of, yeah, quite a profitable spice trade. And they basically set up an administrative post in West Papua to... Uh, basically to protect that economic... Uh, that economic uh, industry, I guess. Uh, and also to, you know... To signal clearly to the Dutch, uh, sorry, to the Germans and the British who were on the, on the eastern half of the island.
0: Yeah, right. So, um, is that sort of the sort of territorial posturing and spice trading? Is that all they were doing there, pretty much? Yeah, it was. Uh, What's well, quite interesting, actually, in
1: in the. Re- uh, in throughout the rest of the Dutch East Indies, the Dutch actually ruled through uh, local sultans or uh, village chiefs. But in West Papua they actually created uh, a second layer of administration. So they actually brought over people from say the Malukus or other parts of what was then the Dutch East Indies, and they they formed this this sort of second layer of administration. So it was almost a dual form of colonialism. You had the Dutch colonialism, and then you had this this other level of administrative colonialism from people outside of West Papua. Um, and so you know even even before you know in the early sort of 1900s there was this. Uh, often, you know, contested or difficult relationship between the Indigenous inhabitants uh, and those who administered um, or were in administrative roles uh, in in West Papua. Um, And that's kind of continued uh, to be quite a problematic
0: relationship. Yeah, I guess that's uh, sort of similar to the... uh The um, situation today with the Indonesian rule, exactly,
1: exactly, and it's one of the reasons too why the why the West Papuans don't feel any real affinity um, historically, uh, politically, or culturally. Um, You know, with uh, with Indonesia.
0: Yeah, now in 1969 there was uh, some sort of interim UN authority handed over. Yeah, I'll probably go back a few years
1: because it's quite interesting. First of all, Indonesia became, declared independence in 1945. They became That was recognised in 1949. The Dutch retained control of West Papua, arguing that there was no significant historical uh political or cultural ties with the rest of Indonesia. What happened was the Australian government at the time really su- supported that move. They supported self-government uh, in West Papua. And in fact, the joint agreement was signed between the Dutch and the Australians in '57, pledging to cooperate to develop both halves of the island, economically, politically, culturally, looking possibly to the view of unification. Uh, of the whole island by 1962, what had happened was the the Indonesians um, under the leadership of uh, Sukarno had secured support from the Russians in the form of a soft uh, financial loan of a couple—I think it was about 400 million uh, US dollars—and they've also secured military aid. And actually, in 61, they sort of launched a small-scale invasion. Uh, of West Papua, called um, Tricora, the Three Commands of the People. Um, This prompted the US to intervene. They were really nervous, I mean, middle of the Cold War, and they set up what was called the New York Agreement. And this was an agreement that was brokered by the United Nations and signed by Indonesia and, and the Dutch. And West Papuans were not consulted, nor were they involved. I mean, it was, it was fundamentally undemocratic. Um, even though there was... Uh, the Dutch had established a council, uh, an elected council, uh, the West New Guinea Council, and... Um, And there were a number of... And that council consisted of West Papuan representatives, Indigenous representatives. Uh, However, at the New York Agreement, the West Papuans were not involved. Now, although that New York Agreement signed on the 15th of August 1962 was fundamentally unjust and undemocratic, it did give the West Papuans certain rights. Uh, Now, those rights were the right to... Assembly, the freedom of assembly, uh, freedom of speech, and freedom of movement. In addition, <laughs> um, that New York Agreement stipulated that there would be an act of self-determination, and they said that this act of self-determination would be in accordance with international practice. "Quote unquote," and that was to take place no later than six years uh, after the Dutch. Um, uh, sorry, uh, after um, administration was handed over from, you know, from the Dutch. So what happened was the Dutch, under the New York Agreement, the Dutch handed administrative control of the territory over to the Indonesians after a brief period of UN control. Now this was the first time the United Nations had ever administered a territory and I think they had ha- less than 20 staff uh, and they were there for a total of seven months. They walked away on the first of May, uh, 1963, uh, and Indonesian administration walked in. And the first thing they did was basically strip the country of all its uh, material wealth um, and take that back to Java. They built a huge bonfire and they burnt a lot of uh, a lot of historical artifacts and cultural artifacts and books and things like that that they felt was that was. ...connected to the Dutch or that uh, was talking about uh, the right to self-determination. Then, so Indonesia basically administered the territory um, on behalf of the United Nations. And as you say, in 69, uh, there was the the so-called Act of Free Choice... Uh, or act of free of choice, as some say, or the act of no choice, um, which you often hear uh, in West Papua. And why West Papuans call it the act of no choice is because less than 0.2% of the population participated. It was was basically 1,022 tribal elders were hand-picked. They were interned in camps, isolated from their families, guarded by the Indonesian military and they were told to raise their raise their hand to support integration with Indonesia or they'd have their tongues cut out now this was happening in a situation of virtually near rebellion Uh, the Indonesian was bombing villages um, West Papuan dissidents uh, independence activists were being detained uh, summarily executed uh a, n- a number of West Papuans were forced to flee uh, to Papua New Guinea. Uh, it was, you know, a very tense, uh, repressive environment. Uh, and you know, the documents coming out now, you know, in the last couple of years that are in the U.S., Dutch, and Australian archives clearly say, you know, that that virtually the whole, you know, ninety something percent of the population was against uh, Indonesian rule. That was brutally suppressed, and um, as part of the act of, uh, of free choice, these 1,022 uh, people who were cajoled into participating uh, agreed under duress and intimidation to um, that the West Papua should be part of Indonesia. Mm. Um, but there was no vote as such. And the undersecretary at the time, a guy called Chakra- Chakravarti Narasimhan, who was uh, a UN official, I mean, he came out a few years ago and said it was a total whitewash. It was a total sham. You know, you had more than a million people who had their fundamental ro- democratic rights trampled on.
0: Yeah, and I presume this was sort of the time where the Morning Star flag came to be or?
1: yeah look it was the morning star flag was actually first raised um in 1961 uh when the when the new guinea council was formed but when indonesia took over the territory uh it was outlawed um you know right right from the beginning and after indonesia took over that's when um the the OPM Organisasi Papua Madaka, the Free Papua Movement was formed and you know you started to see organised resistance um to Indonesian rule in West Papua yeah
0: uh i you know, one of the things that i read was that the uh, the freeport mine was uh starting up just before the handover
1: yeah i mean this is an extraordinary uh turn of events you had the u.s that supported sahato so they supported uh they, they supported the indonesian indonesian president sahato he came into power in 65 after a very bloody coup in which anywhere from from you know half a million to two million, possibly more, uh, dissidents were were executed. I mean, this was a massive depoliticization through through organised state terror. Now that was supported by by the US. So he he came into into power in '65. Now he was very he was pro-western. There was a meeting with uh, Western. Dip- what hap- one of the things that happened was that Freeport McMoRan, uh, a U.S. Uh, mining company, got approval um, to operate in West Papua in 1967. Now that's two years before the whole question of sovereignty uh, was supposed to be settled. So, you know, you had the U.S. and Indonesia working The indigenous people just had no say in the matter, um, and the local Mulme people forcibly removed. military
0: yeah sounds uh, sort of interesting um, what else are the Indonesians doing on the island I presume there's fishing and forestry is there any farming or anything
1: It's extraordinarily wealthy um, I mean, it's, it's the resource wealth is beyond belief it's uh, huge timber reserves uh, well I mean it's a tropical forest uh, hardly timber reserves but I mean it's been quite ruthlessly explored Uh, Indonesian military backed uh, logging operations often working hand in hand with Malaysian uh, companies. Uh, There's massive fishing reserves, Uh, there's oil, there's gas. The world's largest open pit mine is the Freeport mine, it's gold and copper. Um, There's nickel, as I said before, Uh, there's even uranium. one of the, you know, economically speaking, the richest pieces of real estate on the planet uh, in terms of the resource wealth. And that's been a real curse uh, for, the, for the indigenous
0: people. Yeah, I imagine the uh, Indonesian government would be very, very unlikely to want to give that up. Well, certainly the the, uh, the,
1: the what's their investment, if you like, politically and economically in West Papua is, is far greater than in East Timor, for example. Um, just to give you an example, the Freeport mine, uh, that's Indonesia's largest taxpayer. Um, and, and I mean, they give an extraordinary amount of revenue from that, goes uh, goes to Jakarta. But also, as part of the that equation, you've, you've got the Indonesian military, and... Um, and the Indonesian military only is paid uh, by the state, by the Indonesian state, to the tune of 20 to 30 percent. Which means that uh, the bulk of its revenue, which is uh, what 70 to 80 percent, actually comes from they. They have to find that themselves, and they do that through uh, setting up businesses. The Indonesian military, uh, TNI, is funded by the Indonesian state to the tune of 20 to 30 percent. So that means that 70 to 80 percent of their revenue uh, has to come from other sources. And the way the Indonesian military does this is through setting up uh, businesses, both illegal businesses uh, and legal businesses. They include things like uh, running fishing and cannery operations. running uh, timber operations uh, often these are illegal uh, logging operations uh, providing security uh, to companies like Freeport so Freeport for instance has, uh, pays the Indonesian military tens of millions of dollars uh, each year um, and sometimes this is direct cash payments uh, to generals so, so I think one of the generals made in and who was um Set up a militia group in East Timor, and then was later transferred to West Papua. Uh, was paid in excess of two hundred thousand US dollars, um, you know, cash payment. Um, and then they'll they'll run um, things like uh, gun running. Uh, they'll be smuggling bird, birds, and orchids and wildlife uh, out of the country. They're uh, involved with the drug trade. I mean, I think. Uh, the late Andrew McNaughton, who was a uh, well-known East Timor campaigner, described the Indonesian military as a cross between the SS and the mafia, and I think that's a pretty apt description um, because uh, the way it conducts its business is often uh, just as ruthless uh, as the way, you know, as its involvement in in human rights violations.
0: Yeah, and I guess it's fairly close to power too, yeah, the whole military thing. Yeah.
1: Very close to power. I mean, what, one of the. There's a, what's called the territorial command structure, and this basically this means that the Indonesian. Mili- well, first of all, the Indonesian military's sole purpose is not for external defence, like in Australia. Their purpose is. For internal defence, so holding the country together—that's uh, that's why they were created, and that's their you know their whole reason for being, if you like. And they have to facilitate this. They have what's called the territorial command structure, which basically is a command structure that mirrors the civilian structure. So that means that you have the Indonesian military is present. Uh, both in, in cabinet you know right from the top of uh, the political hierarchy in, in the cabinet in in Jakarta right down to the the smallest hamlet um, you know in remote villages there are there are people working uh, for the Indonesian military and can be um, you know sometimes they might be off duty but they can be recalled uh, at any time and often will be drawn upon to set up uh, local militias but pretty much through everywhere in all levels of society you'll find the Indonesian military uh, and indigenous uh, political leaders in West Papua uh, wherever they go they are, they are shadowed literally uh, by members of the Indonesian military uh, so the political space is severely restricted uh, within the, the political structure in West Papua and the the, the military even has infiltrated the the church the Protestant and Catholic church uh, and certainly uh, throughout Islamic uh, religious networks as well
0: yeah right so um, their role in general sort of West Papua society is really sort of everywhere
1: absolutely absolutely I mean they're involved in every aspect of society and they um, you know as I was saying before they've Uh, They've got a very strong economic interest um, in the conflict as well and often perpetuate conflict uh, to maintain that economic interest.
0: Yeah, and now I guess another thing that's happened since 69 when the handover was sort of done is uh, transmigration. Uh, Do you want to just touch on that for us? Yeah, well... um,
1: that's right, I mean, the, the Indonesian government has been uh, paying uh, Indonesian families, mainly from Java, Bali and Sulawesi, to to resettle in West Papua. Uh, and they'll be given a little start-up package um, a plot of land. Again, this was uh, land that would be taken from the Indigenous uh, people. And... Um, and the, the purpose of that, even though they talk about it's relieving population pressure, the real purpose of that is to to try and culturally integrate um, West Papua into Indonesia and, and uh, displace the local population. In, in recent years, that transmigration uh, has slowed partly because it's received enormous criticism, um, and the you know, through campaigning, the the World Bank withdrew their support for it. Um, it's still is still funded by the Indonesian government, and they're hoping to increase it in West Papua. But in addition to that, you've also got spontaneous migration, and that's actually overtaken transmigration. So that's where Indonesians from uh, from throughout the archipelago will basically travel to West Papua on their own free will uh, and set up offices, uh, also set up businesses um, Yeah, over, over there. And, and again, this, this works to displace uh, the Indigenous population. I think the current population breakdown is about 60% Indigenous, to 40% uh, Indonesian.
0: Yeah, and I guess um, that brings into it uh, a whole Indonesian culture sort of smashing right into the the very old culture of the the island itself. Absolutely, and
1: uh, it is a real clash of cultural values. I mean, you've you've got a lot of the trans migrants are, are Muslim, and you know, they come across to West Papua, you know, particularly in the Highlands, and where, you know, where the pig is a central part of the political economy there, and, you know, there's just this this fundamental clash between, um, you know, you see these, these Melanesian men uh, walking around, in the, you know, with a penis cord with some pigs, and it's just considered abhorrent to a lot of, a lot of the Indonesian Muslims there, uh, and that's made worse by this institutional racism uh, that really pervades uh, Indonesian society, and it's not talked about in Indonesia. Uh, and you hear it again from from West Papuans that that they are told. By Indonesians that so they're you know they're ignorant they're stupid they're you know they're lazy they're dirty I mean all the kind of racist slurs um, you know just are dragged up again and again and again uh, and are firmly entrenched not just in people's attitude but also into the structures the political and economic structures um, you know of Indonesia in general and West Papua in particular. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I mean, sometimes this plays out in a, in a way that that Indigenous culture is criminalised. So, for instance, in the nineteen eighties, you had the West Papuan uh, anthropologist and musicologist uh, Arnold App, <coughs> who amazing guy. I mean, he travelled around West Papua collecting the songs and dances of the people, and he was the one who really encouraged. Probably more than anyone, got West Papuans to think about themselves as an as a nation, and uh, you know, as West Papuans first, and then um, you know, as and their local indigenous identity second. But you know, this was incredibly threatening to the Indonesian state, and he was jailed by the Indonesian authorities, and along with Eddie Mofu, uh, his colleague, you know, they were assassinated in '84, um, and even now um a lot of west Papuans are uh, prohibited from speaking their own language and uh you know singing their own indigenous songs uh so yeah i mean the the criminalization of indigenous culture is, is still you know it still happens to this day
0: yeah well, but uh, i guess it's uh got parallels to the colonization of australia there, it? yeah yeah, yeah. Ab-
1: absolutely um
0: Absolutely, I mean
1: the and you know I think there's there's key similarities there and you know what West Papua and friends say to me is don't let what happened to Australia happen to West Papua because you know the difference is when the the colonials you know the colonists came over to Australia you know you know they had muskets and bayonets uh, in and Indonesia horses, yeah. horses in, in Indonesia the Indonesian
0: military's got you know helicopter gunships. <laughs> yes, it's a, it's a different scale altogether, right? Absolutely, Absolutely, absolutely. Um, um, I guess those helicopter gunships are uh, <laughs> sort of part of the whole control of the whole place. And mm. there's, um, I guess your helicopter gunships and your transmigrants are really the only contact for many years that the West Papuans had. There was a, a <laughs> yes, real isolation right. of the, the population there, wasn't there? Yeah,
1: so. that's right. I mean, even now... For many West Papuans living in the highlands, their only contact with the Indonesian state is with men in camouflage.
0: Mm, welcome. Mm. Yeah, so I guess there was a media ban, I believe, for many many years as well, was not it? Yeah, that's
1: right. I mean, until '98, the the province was a military operations area, which means there were active military operations. Uh, against the indigenous population. Uh, the last two years has been a media ban. Um, in, I mean, Mark Forbes from The Age got in recently, uh, but it's still, I don't know of other journalists who've been able to get in since. It's still very, very difficult uh, to, to get in into West Papua, and virtually impossible for journalists. Um, and that's part of the strategies. Of, of Indonesian rule in West Papua, it's to prohibit uh, the flow of information. Uh, Mark uh, Davis, uh, the Dateline reporter, calls it a, a secret story, a hidden story, uh, because it's been kept hidden uh, from the rest of the world. Uh, and, you know, Western governments have played a critical role in this. The Australian government has consistently repressed information since the mid since the early 60s. They've repressed information of military activity happening in West Papua uh, that they've known about. And we know this now because the archives, um, you know, we can get access to the archives, uh... Uh, after 30 years, and it's it's very clear that they knew that the Indonesian military was executing uh, people, that they were carrying out massacres, that they were bombing villages, uh, and they kept this uh, from the Australian people. Mm. And they still, you know, keep this information. Uh, you know, or, keep, or you know, try and keep the Australian public in the dark about what's happening uh, in West Papua.
0: Yes. Um, how how's it gone overseas? I mean, I imagine there would be some Dutch interest there, being former colony, and other non English speaking places.
1: Look, the, the Dutch interest is it's it's actually not as much as in Australia. Sad, uh, sadly. I mean that. Hopefully, that will change. I mean. Uh, last year there was a a Dutch study was finished that was commissioned by the previous Dutch government and carried out by a professor of history Pieter Drugliver and he handed down an 800 page uh, book uh, which looked into the Dutch government's role and again you know uh, concluded what we all know which is that the whole process of self-determination was a total sham um, there's, there's solidarity groups in Ireland uh, in Japan in the US uh, in Germany there's quite a, a strong uh, solidarity movement um, in the Pacific Vanuatu uh, is probably the, the West Papuan's most faithful uh, supporter and the, the council of chiefs have uh, got right behind uh, the issue, they're a very powerful body in in Vanuatu uh, politics, um, and yeah, so I mean the the, the movement's growing, but it's it's uh, it's still at its early stages. I think in Australia, with five years ago, there was probably one uh, one support group that's now grown to about uh, 16, 17 support groups across the country, uh, and certainly the interest has really taken off since the. The 43 West Papuans arrived.
0: Yeah, that sort of blew the secrecy out of the water here.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It was, uh, I mean, what an incredible story and just a really courageous act uh, on their, their behalf. Because I actually, you know, cut down the tree to build the canoe and sailed it for six weeks from the north of West Papua right the way around the coast. Yeah, yeah. Uh, to Morocco and then made that ocean journey across.
0: And was that uh, cyclone season then, or has it happened since?
1: It was. It was very, very rough. <laughs> very rough season they actually, ran the the motor, Their motor broke down, uh, and the you know one of the guys was virtually on death's doorstep, and uh, as his last kind of act of service, you know, repaired, took the motor apart in the dark, and put it back together, and. Uh, you know lo and behold the next morning they, they pull the engine and it starts up mm. uh, and you know they, they were able to make it but there were, there were times when they, they ran out of water and they actually they had young kids on board uh, you know my friend Herman who's, a, who's the leader of the group he's got two twins uh, young twins and they are catching rain people catching the rain in their hands and dribbling it into the, the kids mouth just to keep them alive it's just quite an
0: amazing story yeah absolutely i just want to touch on the freeport mine which seems mm. to be a uh, quite a flashpoint um over the whole sort of conflict
1: absolutely and you can't separate what's happening in 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 free you know around freeport and with freeport with the whole issue of self-determination i mean they they're, they're quite yeah, I mean, it's, you're right, It's a real. Freeport's become a real lightning rod uh, for broader grievances that West Papuans
0: have. Yeah, like it's the world's largest gold and copper mine. If That's any, right. If anyone's driven past big open pit mines in Australia and out back, they're big. It's so just a massive operation. And they're literally, I mean,
1: uh, they've, they've literally removed the whole mountain. Uh, and they're digging it out, uh, which to the local Umungne people is their ancestral grandmother.
0: And Papua has real mountains, not like Australia.
1: Big mountains, you know. Uh, Freeport is perched beneath uh, what the Umungne people call the Namungkawiarat, Hmong, the which, um, you know, is, is around about 5,000 metres high.
0: Yeah, that's, that's getting up there, isn't it?
1: Massive, massive. Yeah. Massive. Um, and, I mean, the, environmentally, it's just a disaster as well. I mean, they're, they're dumping tailings into the river, the local river system, Chiqua River, at the, the rate of over 200,000 tonnes a day, which is, I mean, to compare it with Octeti, um, you know, that BHP was dumping tailings into the Fly River at about 80,000 tonnes a day. Uh, and, you know, and that caused massive amount of damage and controversy, and that mine was... Eventually close for that reason, and um, and three ports, you know, almost three times that that amount.
0: Yeah, and I presume they're using the cyanide leach method to get the gold out of air?
1: Yeah, I mean it's it's wiped out over a hundred thousand square kilometres of rainforest. It's you know it's polluted the river which flows into the Arafura Sea, you know, which is a very shallow sea bordering uh, Australia, you know, very you know, important um, breeding grounds for dugongs and fish. Um, Yeah, it's just causing a massive amount of damage. I think they've filled up two highland valleys with rock waste. Uh, And look, it's really unsafe for workers as well. I mean, only whilst all these protests were going on at the mine, they had another landslide, and, you know, I think there was at least one worker who was killed. And, you know, this has happened a few times
0: It's also got its own sort of local economy going on around it. I guess there's the usual mining town sort of things with the bottles Mm, and hotels and that sort of thing.
1: Controlled by the Indonesian military along with the alcohol trade and security trade. And then you've got the Indonesian military and Freeport uh, private security personnel that have killed, uh, you know... Around about uh, 160, at least 160 people, you know, in in the Freeport mining concession, not not one person has been held to account for that, for those murders. Mm. Um, on top of that, you've got massive theft of land, uh, and the Amulna people and the Kamora people uh, just live in absolute poverty. It's also, I mean, being. Been the, there's the honey pot effect, so it's attracted indigenous, uh, other indigenous groups, and that's often created social conflict uh, and you know jealousy and division. Uh, and freeports use that uh, sort of divide and rule. I mean, it's it's almost like a, a mining fiefdom. Um, you know, the freeport pretty much runs the entire local local economy. Yeah.
0: Yeah, uh, <laughs> pretty wild stuff, really. It's uh it is.
1: It's it's the the Wild East of Indonesia, if you like. <laughs> it's a real frontier. Uh, you know, it's a frontier environment, uh, uh, and you know, it's and we, sh- we should say that that mine is supported by Australia. I mean, you've got Rio Tinto, which still, whilst they're divesting themselves of shares, they still own. Um, you know they're still involved with the mine and um, there's an 100% owned Australian company based in Cairns called International Plain Incorporated they own a boat called the Java Sea uh, and that goes backwards and forwards to Freeport every 10 days they're supplied by some 400 Australian companies which supply everything from massive grinding balls you know through to uh, a whole range of other mining equipment you know through to and, um, you know, a whole lot of food stuff, so, you know, four-wheel drives, shipping
0: containers, the whole lot. Mm, well, I guess capital is always right, so it's fair enough.
1: <laughs> well, it's,
0: it's, it's
1: interesting, because what it means is that the Freeport, uh, I mean, just if we look at the supply side, Freeport's actually vulnerable. And if we have an organised movement in Australia... Freeport's supply line, both the physical supply line in terms of food, stuff and equipment, but also the economic supply line uh, through in terms of, you know, the, uh, the export credit agencies, shareholders, superannuation funds and so forth. Uh, you know, I, th- I think Freeport, Freeport, you know, could be made, you know, could... B- could be made to, you know, held accountable for some of this stuff. And and West Papuans together with allies in the US have been doing this kind of work and it's uh, been through the work People in the U.S., in particular, that we've learnt about some of the uh, the economic relationship between uh, Freeport and the Indonesian military, you know, through shareholder resolutions and pension funds, uh, actually getting together and taking action um, to try and hold the company to account. So I think we're we're not powerless in the face of these, you know,
0: military-backed mining. Companies. Yeah, that's always really good news to hear. <laughs> now we'll have to move on a bit. Um, yeah, who was Tase Ellaway and uh, what happened to him? Yeah, Tase Ellaway was uh, uh,
1: the leader of the, uh, the Presidium, uh, the Papuan um, Presidium Council, which was pretty much parallel uh, parliament. Now it was sort of set up. In the aftermath of the fall of Sahato, Pappalans got together. Ninety-nine. they held a massive congress um, in which you know, tens of thousands of people uh, participated in. Some of them, like from the Highlands, walked across mountain ranges and forests and crossed rivers, uh, you know, travelled for up to a month or more to participate in, in that gathering uh six months uh, or so later, or so you know, the, the following year, I think in 2000, uh, they after that large gathering, they that's when they had the congress and actually elected this parallel, um, parallel parliament, if you like. So there were 501 uh, panel representatives and 31 executives, and they actually represented every sector of the. Public from young people, students, to traditional leaders, to women, um, so on and so forth. And Tace Elloway was elect, elected as the chair of that, and he pledged to pursue independence uh, through non-violent means. Uh, in 2001, uh, he was assassinated uh, by the Indonesian military, and... Um, and by, by Kupasas, actually, the Indonesian Special Forces, who uh, Australia has just resumed training with. Hmm.
0: Yes. And uh, I guess since then there's been a couple of things that have gone on. There's, um, I'm not sure what order this comes in, but there's a Papuan People's Council and uh, now there's a, uh, a new sort of area called West Irian <laughs> Yeah, look, at,
1: at the same time that Tay Selaway was assassinated, the, the group of Papuan moderates introduced seized the initiative and they introduced something called Special Autonomy. Uh, special Autonomy, uh, is, as the name implies, was intended to give greater decision-making uh, powers uh, to the West Papuan people and also to divert uh, economic wealth from Jakarta to Papua, so that Papuans themselves could direct that into health and education. Uh, under special autonomy, there was the, the Majelis Rakyat Papua was to be established, which is the Papuan People's Council, as he mentioned. Now, what happened was this, the, the Papuan, first of all, uh, the Habibi attempted to divide the province before special autonomy was uh, was established. Now, that was uh, resisted by the Papuan people quite successfully through widespread um, and, you know, continuous non-violent action. They overturned that. Then, under special autonomy, to avoid this this scenario happening again, special autonomy legislation declared that the... Papuan People's Council could be the only body that could approve any attempt to divide Papua into into two or more provinces. However, Megawati Sikana Putri, the former president of Indonesia, divided uh, divided the province of West Papua without instituting the Papuan People's Council, in total violation of special autonomy. Since then, in recent and in last, I think it was last year, the Papuan People's Council was uh, initiated, and they conducted a nationwide consultation, and the 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 notion or the idea of dividing Papua was uh, was was roundly rejected by the population. Um, however, um, Susila Bangbang Yudhoyono, the current president, has continued. Allow the division of Papua to go forth, and again, this is indirect uh, contradiction with special autonomy. On top of that, special autonomy is, has has been a complete a complete disaster. It's 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 been a total failure, really. Uh, health and education levels haven't improved. There's been widespread allegations that the money used has either been siphoned off. To enrich individuals, or uh, and or has been used to uh, to fund military operations uh, in the Highlands, for instance. And you know the the people's the indigenous people's trust in Jakarta. Is pretty much in the negative um, yeah. as a result of, of you know all these political machinations on top of you know human rights violations and military operations.
0: Yeah, um, we'll just go for a short break and listen to a song, and then we'll come back and finish off with uh, what's happening right now in West Papua. We're joined again by Jason McLeod from the Australian West Papua Association. Um, we before the last break we were just talking about uh, the new province of West Urien, which is attempting to be carved out at the moment. They've um, they've just put in some elections there for a governor, I believe. And what do you reckon's the purpose of this? Oh, look, it's w- a lot
1: of West Papuans are, are deeply suspicious that this is part of a, a divide and rule strategy uh, of Jakarta to uh, to uh the movement and divert the energy of, of people who are campaigning for uh, for self determination. Um, I, I mean, it remains to be seen what's gonna what's gonna happen there. I, I, that province is still deeply contested uh, right across Papua, across West Papua, um, and you know I, I think that the jury's still out. Um, whether
0: it's actually going to be, be viable or not. Yeah, okay. Um, so, I guess, w- when, when did that election happen?
1: Uh, that was only, uh, I'm not exactly sure of the date, but I think it was only a matter of weeks ago. Yeah. yeah and it was, um, it was, so there were elections both in uh, both, uh, both provinces uh, the province of Papua and the province of Irian uh, uh, Jaya
0: Barat. Um, yeah, yeah, in Western Province. So then, I think shortly after that, there was a blockade up at the mine. Do you reckon that was a response to that?
1: Um, in 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 part, I mean, what what I mean the blockade. I think the blockade initially happened. I think it was it was a localized thing that quickly spiralised out of control. Um, and you know, it was a lightning rod to to. Deeper and more widespread grievances held by Indigenous people. So it was initially over, um, you know, over the uh, local people were being prohibited from mining the tailings um, for for gold, and that was just when that when they were stopped from doing that. It was just deep resentment. Uh, And they, as you say, they blockaded the the road heading up to the mine. They actually managed to close the mine, you know, which cost the company millions. Um, Then... They were joined and their, their demands quickly increased you know wanting to get all uh non-organic or combat troops out of the province uh and to revisit the you no. know for there to be a genuine process of self-determination uh and you know there'd be international third parties new, uh, neutral third parties involved in that process uh however th- at the same time the the MRP, the Magellus Rakia Papua, well, the Papuan Peoples Council, which is um, that indigenous upper house that was uh, that was set up last year, visited Timika, um, and the local people they, they were meeting at the at the Hilton, uh, oh, sorry, the was it Sheraton or the Hilton. Anyway, one of the Sheraton, yeah. yeah, the Sheraton in in, in Timika, um, and the local people were just deeply, uh, angered by this. They felt that they, uh, the MRP should have came and talked to them about what was happening. So they actually, uh, trashed, uh, the Sheraton, um, hotel as, as part of that. And then, yes, you saw the continuation of protests in Jakarta and then protests in, in Jayapura in the capital
0: yeah now somewhere in there the 43 asylum seekers turn up in the north of australia that's right that, was ha- that happened earlier this year um yeah sort of in
1: january okay uh, this okay. year yeah so i knew i'd get my
0: timeline wrong in there. Someday. yeah
1: no no that's <laughs> fine i mean all all these 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 events you know quite inter interconnected and often happening uh you know simultaneously
0: Okay, I actually think I know where I was there. The uh, somewhere around there, the the student demos going on around the university. That's right. That's uh, right. Yeah, cover them for now.
1: Yeah, they well the local
0: students
1: there. You know. So you had the students, you had people demonstrating in Timica, you had students closing the Freeport offices in Jakarta, um, together with Indonesian students as well, pro democracy students. Then uh, students, uh, the, at the from the you know, tertiary students in, in Jarapura, blockaded the main road, uh, which, is, which basically is the, mo- the main road connecting. Uh, this is the capital, Jopuru with the outside road. Um, you know, they felled trees and tyres and they managed to sustain a blockade for just over a day. Uh, then the police, uh, police were monitoring the situation. They moved in. They had a couple of armoured vehicles, some panthers. Um, they moved in uh, and forcibly tried to to break up the blockade and then then somebody in the crowd uh, threw a rock and this is what I've heard and then uh, the police opened fire uh,
0: and then just the situation just turned to total mayhem Oh Um, yeah and out of that whole situation I think they ended up with five policemen and I guess that's an unknown amount of students uh,
1: What what I'm hearing I mean I've um, was that four policemen uh, were killed at at that time Uh, three Bremont which is the mobile police brigade and then uh, a military intelligence officer now at least one of these policemen was killed after he ran out of bullets so he was walking around uh, shooting people with his pistol and ran out of bullets and the crowd just turned on him uh but i mean it was just a terrible thing to have happened uh, I, I think anger just boiled over and the crowd lost control it's, you know it's just yeah absolutely horrible thing to have happened to, to those policemen and their families what what happened then though um was that the, the police just uh lost it they they carried out uh revenge attacks that are continuing to this day. I mean, uh, you know, they've they're dem- they're destroyed or, de- you know, damaged up to nine student hostels. They were shooting cars, pulling Papuans out, dividing them into highland and lowland groups, and, uh, you know, targeting the highlanders in particular for Syria, you know, for, for beatings. Uh up to you know somewhere, somewhere over eighty people dragged off to jail. Um, many of them were beaten and, and tortured. We've, uh, tens were shot badly. Um, we we don't know how many how many were killed just yet. But uh, grave concerns are held for sixteen uh, Papuan students who've been disappeared. Um, feared dead. Um, now I should say these—the police carried out their attacks against all puppens. I mean, they didn't. Uh, it wasn't against just against you know the students who were at the demo, or even the stu- you know, or the, the students who were involved in the acts of violence, because not all the students were. Uh, they just carried out these revenge attacks. Against Against all Papuans, Papuans, regardless of whether they're involved in that demonstration or not, and this is part of the the way you know all Indigenous Papuans are targeted by the security forces just by virtue of being Melanesian. Um, it seems to be enough in the eyes of the security forces to be you know to be attacked and brutalised. So we've, we, we know of up to over 80 people in jail, 16 or so um, have, have been disappeared, and as I was saying, you know, they're feared dead. Uh, and this is continuing. I mean, I, I got a, a text message two nights ago uh, saying that Brea had shot dead a Papuan student, uh, Achoyak, uh, on, the, on the streets of Chayapura. Journalists, you know, covering it have been beaten, um, the poli- sometimes quite savagely and hospitalised. The, the police and the military are guarding the hospital, so uh, we don't know, you know, what's what's happened to those people, and if the experience of East Timor's anything to go, go by often, People who are, are beaten, you know, carried into the hospital and actually uh, disappeared or killed uh, in, in the hospital. Um, human rights activists uh, from ELSAM, from the Institute for the Study and Advocacy of Human Rights in, in West Papua, uh, are in hiding. They are being looked for by the police and prevented from carrying out investigations. Um Hundreds of students have gone into hiding. They're um, subsisting on roots and leaves and, um, you know, large numbers are, uh, you know, are wanting to to seek political asylum in places like Australia and and Papua New Guinea.
0: Um, Meanwhile, of course, um, in the the diplomatic tensions which we'll come to shortly, of course, Australia's tightened its borders to make sure that we don't get any more unwanted arrivals, which would be embarrassing for both governments, I guess.
1: Yeah, but the, you know the thing is that it's such it's such a superficial uh, response, and it's responding to the symptoms. I mean, whilst the root causes of the conflict in in West Papua remain unaddressed, will Continue to be, uh, you know, refugee issues. And since 1980, you know, 84, there's been around about 12 to 13,000 refugees in Papua New Guinea, and periodically more will come across the border. Uh, so this is a situation that's just going to get worse, and I think tightening up border security is not a solution. The, the way to, to deal with it is to is to look at the root causes, you know, the impunity of the Indonesian military, the systematic human rights violations that have been carried out by the Indonesian military, and ultimately the denial of self-determination.
0: Yeah. Well, I guess to give the Australian government its due, it has now... Um in the middle of all this tension going on in Jayapura and throughout West Papua, has given the 43 arrivals who came in January temporary protection visas. It's just
1: fantastic news, isn't it, Scotty? I mean, it's just absolutely wonderful. And and what it means is that for the first time, the Australian government is recognising that something is seriously wrong in West Papua. Mm. That there are grave human rights concerns. Uh, And, you know, essentially they recognised... Their, their their claim, their allegation that genocide uh, is taking place uh, in West Papua. Um, you know, I, th- I just it's absolutely wonderful that the Australian government has uh, you know yeah granted um, protection visas to these uh, you know these courageous group of students, many of whom you know survive survivors of uh, you know. A military operations and, and human rights abuses by the by the security forces and, uh, you know, our activists themselves. Um, yes, yeah, so it's, it's absolutely
0: fantastic. Yeah, I understand one of them uh, had, well, either themselves or a relative, was in jail for something like 20 years for putting the flag up. Yeah, look, Herman
1: Wangai's uncle, uh, Thomas Wangai was was sentenced to jail for 20 years for raising uh, raising the flag. Uh, he's a Japanese-born wife. Got, I think, six or eight years just for sewing the flag. Um, Herman himself has uh, been in jail t- on two occasions um, for raising the West Papuan flag, as had a number of other uh, of the activists. So, I mean, these are, you know, seasoned political activists and you know many of whom are, are political prisoners
0: uh, themselves mm. now the reaction of the Indonesian government to the protection visas is being granted
1: <laughs> I think Herman Wang you know the leader of the these uh, 43 West Papuans said it best, you know. Indonesia's angry for a day, but West Papuans have been, been suffering for you know for
0: 43 years. Mm. <laughs> you know, sort of puts it in perspective, really. Yeah, it does. And uh, another, another on the grapevine that's a bit worrying. um, can you confirm whether Eurico Gutierrez, the guy who set up the militias in East Timor, is around in uh, West Papua?
1: Yeah, yes, he is. Eurico uh, Gutierrez uh, set up by Tark in East Timor, which means Four, which is one of the most notorious militia groups. Um, and yes, he, he travelled to Timica. Uh, A couple of years ago, and established a militia group there called the Red and White Defenders. Uh, Red and white, uh, you know, signifying the the colours of the Indonesian flag. Um, And I mean, this is a pattern that's that's occurred across West Papua. I mean, there are other militia groups that have been set up too, uh, you know, in a strategy that mirrors what took place in, in East Timor. You know, the current chief of... You know, the, or the former chief of police, Timbul Salayan, was also... Uh, he was... Um, he was... a uh, served in East Timor and was implicated in a number of... Uh, gross human rights violations. I mean, he's been in West Papua, as have a number of other generals that were, you know, in East Timor, um, you know,
0: who, who were later transferred across to West Papua. So I guess they're sort of preparing in case uh, independence does come about. Y-
1: well, I mean, this has been something that's been going on for years, uh, and the Indonesian government's strategy uh, appears to be be one of you know trying to bribe people, uh, you know, and also instituting covert. Uh, operations through the creation of militia groups through you know political assassination like that of uh tay's and other west papuan leaders who've been killed um and overt military operations um and you know using things political moves like the division of papua as a sort of a divide and rule but i mean the west papuans themselves are continuing to organize um i mean we saw in two thousand and two, uh, the guerrilla groups, the, the Opmtp and the, the Free Papa Movement uh, National Liberation Armies, which uh, of which there are six six commands, you know, they came together and they pledged to to pursue independence through peaceful means, uh, although they reserve the right to self defence. This was um, was. You know, the promise was reiterated last year in December when uh, members of the, the National Liberation Army, uh, civil society groups such as women's groups, NGOs, um, church groups, and you know, traditional leaders along with representatives of political groups came together and formed the National... West To your family, to your workmates, to you know, uh, to you know, people at university or at school, you know, wherever you are, um, you know, get the story out there. Let people know where it is to begin with. Um, then I think you know? There's a whole range of uh, support groups around the country. You can go to freewestpapua.com dot com to contact your local group, um, and which is a great way of, of getting involved if you're not involved or or don't get involved in a local group it's about linking West Papua to other campaigns. So if you're interested in the environment or human rights or indigenous issues uh, you know refugee issues, whatever link
0: West Papua
1: to that.
0: Uh, Yeah, poor fellas, they've got a link to just about everything. Yeah,
1: that's right, that's right it's really a window to understand how the world works I mean, Uh, so I think, yeah, linking West Papua to other social movements is critical. Beyond that, I would say there are three key campaign areas. These are ending Australia's military, or challenging Australia's military relationship with Indonesia, particularly looking at uh, ending uh, Australia's relationship with Kapasa's Indonesian Special Forces, and and stopping the, you know, that's in training, um, and also stopping the arming of the Indonesian military. Last year we sent $8 million worth of arms to the Indonesian military. This has got to stop. I think the second campaign area is is around corporate responsibility. So it's looking at companies like Freeport, like BP, which has a big gas operation, like BHP Billiton which is about to start a nickel mine. And it's, it's looking at what are the links. Who's those companies here in Australia and developing campaigns to encourage those, to encourage people who support uh, those companies to withdraw their support. And, you know, maybe this is looking at where your superannuation is involved or looking at shareholder campaigns, um, you know, or you're talking to your local union um, and supporting, you know, supporting some kind of union action. And then the third campaign is is around self-determination, and I think there's a couple of things we can do. One is we need to have some kind of public truth-telling exercise in Australia, similar to what the Dutch have done, but we need to actually look at Australia's role historically and review what it's doing currently uh, and really have an open and honest discussion about government policy around self-determination. Uh, you know, recognising that self-determination is is recognised under international law as, you know, in the Covenant on Political and Civil Rights and also in the Covenant on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights as being the essence of rights. So we kind of need to, to revisit that. And part of that is actually having an investigation into these persistent allegations of genocide. You know, we actually need to pick that up. Australian government, you know, did that in '95. You know, they led an investigation into what was happening when there was, you know, similar, you know, violations in Freeport. That created some changes. Things are still bad, but it did did make a difference. Um, so we need to put pressure on our political representatives and on social groups, uh, be them churches or unions or, you know, your school or your uni or, or whatever, uh, to, to create the momentum so that we can actually have some investigation into, into genocide. And we all know. It'd be good to also. We also need to support the West Papuan's claim for observer status at the Pacific Island Forum. So I think if folks have links to Pacific countries, uh, or it's important to establish links with Pacific countries and support West Papuans there. Um, and and you know. Beyond that, I think we can we can organize uh, and actually start to build a movement here in australia and and make this a visible uh, issue because things will change when ordinary people stand up for West Papua and then start to Target their protest and their discontent in in strategic ways that actually address the sources of Australian support for the occupation. Uh, you know whether that supports diplomatic, economic, or military. I think by organising targeted pro- uh, protests and campaigns. Uh, at that diplomatic, economic and military support, we can make a difference. And this is an enormous source of strength for people in West Papua who are really at the sharp end of repression. Um, and, you know, it's the least we can do. It's, it's the largest non-violent struggle in our region, of people who've been suffering for 43 years. Our government's deeply implicated, um, you know, and to support people in their struggle. For freedom is a tremendous privilege. It's, it's it's actually something that's you know quite a joyful thing to do, and quite an uplifting thing to do. So you know, I, it's it's a it's a great struggle to be involved in, and anyone who's met any West Papuans will attest uh, just to the warmth and the generosity of spirit. Um, you know that, that those people
0: have. Okay, well, um, unless there's anything else you'd like to add, we'll leave it there. No, that's
1: great, Scotty. Thanks for your time and, and for helping get the story
0: out there. Well, I'm glad your voice lasted the distance. <laughs> so, Jason, <laughs> Jason McLeod from the Australian West Barport Bar Association, thank you very much.
1: My pleasure.